Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. Well, first of all, Nicole, remind me again. I always ask you this question. How many years ago did we meet? That was is before? a great question. I think Rich Bitch was launching. So it was right before your book came out and or maybe right before. I don't know how we met. I we, believe we were just like soul sisters. I know. We, we totally are. Nicole is like one of those people that lights up every single room she is in. But also like your best girlfriend. So (laughs) she is always rooting for you. She's the first person to ask, what can I do? How can I support? And it's legit and it's sincere. So every time Nicole is crazy and decides she's going to write yet another book, even though she remembers the last time it was torture, I'm like, okay, what can I do to support you? Because she's always supporting me. And it's just, you know, she's one of those women that you just know always has the best, best, best intentions. And I'll just give a brief background. And I highly recommend you listen to Nicole's episode. She was literally the first first. person. Yeah. The first person that I recorded with your first (laughs) on the bathroom floor. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I went to Nicole's apartment with my mic and I was like, okay, like what your entire apartment is glass. Like, where are we going to do this? And then we were like in the bathroom. So (laughs) That's what we did. It was the best. We were wearing matching Amazon fake Gucci headbands and it was like the best thing ever. Through your influencer link. Yes. Thank you for that 20 cents. I really, (laughs) I really appreciate the support. So Nicole is a multi New York times bestselling author. She's a money expert. She is on air talent, but the great thing about Nicole and why I think she's the best person to teach about financial independence, especially for women is because she does not come from money. She does not have a finance degree. She does not have an MBA. So everything she has taught over these years, whether it's been rich bitch or, okay, these guys are reading Superwoman for the book club. I told you that. But boss bitch, rich bitch, becoming Superwoman, and now Miss Independent is through her own experience and information gathering. And that is also the same reason why anybody can do it. So in going through this book, which I went through with a fine tooth comb. It's like one of those things where this episode will like gloss over some things and we'll get into some things in a really interesting and dynamic way, but you have to buy this book because the level of tutorial 
on each of like the major category. I mean, it's like a mini MBA, but in a non-intimidating way where like your best friend is telling you like, okay, girl, here's what you do. And these are all the things that you don't know. So needless to say, Nicole started out making $20,000 a year and getting into almost as much credit card debt. And basically she wanted to be an anchor and she took a job, the first job she can get as a finance anchor and faked it till she made it. And basically that sort of set her on her path. And one thing I remember from Nicole's first interview is she wanted to stand out in a really crowded market. So everyone was mailing in their video tapes because this is like ages ago. So yes, we did ourselves. And they were always like black and she made hers red. Let me right? see if I have it. Oh my God, you have it? Stop. This could be a show and tell. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. It, look at baby Nicole. Yeah, you look exactly I don't same. think I've shown anyone this, but I, I just uh, organized my closet with the adorable girls of home edit and everything now is organized so I can find it. And so this was my very first one. So everybody sent out black VHS tapes and I was like, I'm just gonna, I don't know why I did this photo or whatever, but yeah. 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 Also I was like 17 at the time. And you still look 17 to be clear. I appreciate that, but how hilarious. Let's see. And uh, for those they, of you they, youngins, this is still my cell phone number. They probably uh, don't even VHS. know what that is that you're holding. Has anyone ever seen this object before? This is a VHS tape. Okay. Just making sure. And then this one, I was like, oh, why don't I design it like, uh, you know, Little Mermaid <laughs> with, the, with the thing inside. And so that's what I did. And I put some also embarrassing photos of myself. Oh my God. So good. A lot of the times. Oh, look, this is so funny. At Northwestern, I was a student. I was at Northwestern on Friday. I forgot to tell you that. Oh, go cat. Yes, we will discuss. So I didn't just write it on a little label like a lot of people did in my class at Northwestern. I, yeah, I tried to stand out like Elisa. You branded yourself. You totally branded yourself. And just to add in before we let Nicole take it away, but like she was living paycheck to paycheck. There were times where she actually didn't know where her food would come from. I mean, Nicole, you want to speak to this just a little bit because I think it's important for people to understand. Yeah, I grew up in an immigrant family, so I did not know anything about money. And as Aliza said, I taught myself the language of money and I realized it's a language just like anything else. We just don't have a Rosetta Stone for it. And that's what I wanted to create. I didn't talk about it at home. We didn't learn it at school. And you can only bury your head in the sand for so long until you actually have to put your big girl pants on and do something about it because not knowing about it or not learning about it in school and learning about the Pythagorean theorem instead, which makes me so, so angry, is not going to pay your bills. And I was living paycheck to paycheck. I actually started as a writing major, Elisa. I don't know if you knew this. I wanted I to be a poet. (laughs) That was, that was my dream job. And I often say I became a writer, just not the kind I expected. And so when I started at college, I moved over to the journalism school because I thought people on TV must make a lot of money and I need to pay the bills. And, you know, my family was super broken 
crazy home. I kind of get into it more in this book, more than I ever thought I would. I bailed my mother out of jail when I was young using cash. Like that was my experience with cash and money growing up. There was no talk of a mortgage. There was no talk of debt. All of that stuff sounded like gibberish. My boyfriend in high school said he wanted to be a hedge fund manager. I thought he wanted to be in gardening. (laughs) I was completely clueless. And yeah, I then realized that people on TV, especially starting out back in the day in these small markets, I worked in Lexington, Kentucky and Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and and sort of worked my way up, uh, make less than $20,000 a year. And that may have paid some bills, but it was really, really tight. And I ate brown rice and beans for a while because it felt fancier than ramen, but it was the same type of concept. And so, yeah, I was really worried when I came out with Rich Bitch because my imposter syndrome crept back up again. Annie, I love her. She doesn't like imposter syndrome. She does not. (laughs) She's like, no, listen, bitches. You stop. Come here. Her name is also very on brand. You can follow her at Doggy Coin on Instagram. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I was the least likely person to be a money expert. And I was worried when I was launching Rich Bitch that people would call me out for not having all these bona fides and you know not having the pedigree. And it was a really important lesson that I think I taught myself that whatever you're worried about other people saying, say it first. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to own it. I didn't work at a bank. I didn't get my MBA. I don't have a ton of alphabet soup after my name. I am an expert in being broke. And that is why I should tell you how I became unbroke and how I learned how to make my own money and make it work for me in the school of hard knocks. Yes. And that is where, I mean, Rich Bitch, I think is, if you're going to do a progression of reading, I mean, I know you guys, a lot of you are reading, you know, Becoming Superwoman, which is great, but like, I would definitely read Rich Bitch also. I know you can read this first, but would you recommend reading Rich Bitch before this book? It depends on where you are. So Miss Independent is basically Rich Bitch Part 2. It picks up where Rich Bitch left off. So Rich Bitch helps you get out of debt if you have it and get your basic financial life together. But it's not going to help you grow wealth. And that's really what Miss Independent reminds us all, that even a great base salary is not going to grow wealth. Budgeting your face off is not going to grow wealth. Saving is awesome, but that's not going to grow wealth. You're making nothing when you put your money in the bank. The only way that your money is going to work for you because you've worked so hard for your money, I think it should return the favor, is by investing. Yeah. And so, yeah, if you still have debt, I would go back to Rich Bitch and then go on to Miss Independent. But all of my books have kind of chronicled my life and what I was thinking about and dealing with at the time. And I definitely, like I said, did not think I would have one book, much less four. And this is the first of a seven book deal. So it's not the last you're going to hear from me. Oh, Um, okay. You did not tell me that. (laughs) I think I put it on Instagram as like a little sonogram with seven books in the sonogram. Yeah. It was crazy. Every time I've said, I'm not going to do it again. 
you know, I haven't had human babies. You have, Aliza, I don't know which you think is harder, but you don't get an epidural for these births. And I'm like, every which way we're done. We're closed for business. We're taking book birth control. I tell my book agent, we're tying my book tubes. Like I'm closed. I'm done. (laughs) And so, and then you forget the pain. You see the kid. You're like, oh, it's so cute. Let's do this again. But, you know, if if it were up to me, and that's why I argue with a lot of these so-called entrepreneurial experts is if I followed what I wanted to do in my passion, you know, I would be sitting under a tree reading T.S. Eliot all day long. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I instead figured out the opportunities I had and I made a little Venn diagram and the things that I loved and I found the shaded part or the sweet spot. So I became a writer and I hated finance, (laughs) Um, but it, it ended up turning out much different than I had hoped and dreamed. So one of the things you start off right away, which I do think is a good little secret there, millionaires don't make their money from their salaries, no matter how big their paychecks get. They have an average of seven additional streams of income, many of which are passive, meaning their money is making money while they sleep. So this book is really teaching how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, How many streams of income do you have, Aliza? I'm sure you calculated as you were reading. No, but you know what? So Nicole actually lists out like a freaking restaurant check. Every stream of income she has with how much money she makes. That's how transparent this woman is to show you like exactly how she makes up. Okay. So my revenue streams, do we count like when it comes in and then Sabrina and Jonathan just take it? So it's like in, <laughs> but then it's like out again or no. I mean, I have my job. I have my podcast. This is sort of growing into something that could be a revenue stream. And then I have like maybe like one or two social deals every once in a while. Yeah. Amazon influencer. I don't ever think you can put smush that in the social Mm -hmm. Uh, and hopefully investment income. I mean, honestly, and this I'll probably get in trouble for saying this like David does that for us. So like my husband works in finance. So then I I get a little bit of a, I don't have to focus on that because I can focus on other things, but like I have every bank account and every password and I'm aware of everything, but like, he's the one doing it because Lord only knows I have no idea, but then I can read your book and probably contribute at this point. Yeah. I mean, you figured out harder things in life and oftentimes women who want to get their financial life together, do it because they have to like. God forbid, knock on everything, you know, when their husband dies or they get a divorce and then they no longer have somebody doing it for them. And so, you know, you do whatever works best in your relationship, obviously, but knowing how to do it just is important, even if you're not doing it. I now. know. I know you're right. But now I have your book. So that is how I will know how to do it. Yay. So- and yeah, I do talk about all the money I make. I talk about how much I made for my advances. In my other books, I talked about my salaries at CNN and CNBC and Bloomberg and yeah, how much I got from each of my four publishers because they've slutted around the publishing land clearly. And I just thought like, if I'm a woman reading this and she's talking about her salary, like this bitch better put her money where her mouth is. <laughs> yeah, so- totally, totally. So I think this is also a great line. Basically, what you say is you've realized that you can and you should budget and save your ass off, but neither is going to get your net worth to look like your phone number. I love that line. 
So let's talk about something that I think a lot of people think, which apparently myself included and shameful to say, managing money is a guy thing. So it's not a guy thing. Why is that what everyone kind of feels? Yeah. And if you haven't felt that way, you're a better woman than I am. Um, I've definitely felt that way. I think we've been socialized to think that money is a guy thing. And the, the truth is there's nothing that a guy can figure out that we can't. It's just that they talk about it more often and that they talk about it more confidently, even if they don't know much about it. Like I had Jesse Draper, uh, who, you know, Aliza is this badass VC, um, has her own fund. I'm like an LP in her fund. She came on my show. We were talking about like the 101 of venture capital. And she's like, well, you know, I'm not an expert. You're an expert. This is a, such a woman thing to do. Um, but you're totally an expert because you have this finance show. And I'm like, oh, I'm not. Like, we're all learning and growing. And then I was like, no, fuck this. You're an expert. I'm an expert. If two dudes were on this show, they'd be like, I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express and bought a mutual fund. I'm a fucking finance <laughs> expert. Damn it. So yeah, no, totally. we are experts and we should talk about it more. And we should talk about it more confidently. Studies have shown that little boys and little girls use different words. Aliza, I don't know if you've seen this with your two kids. Uh, boys talk about money in a confident way of abundance. Um, little girls talk about money from a place of scarcity and anxiety. And so we've been socialized that way through movies and rom-coms. <laughs> Thank you that a guy is going to fix it and a guy is going to save the day. There are so many stories we tell ourselves. Uh, we don't know math. We don't have enough money to start. You know, we're, we're not good at it, whatever. The truth is those are all excuses and BS that we tell ourselves to delay or procrastinate because the math in getting your financial life together or even investing a fifth grader can do. It's all the other stuff. It's all the emotional crap that stands in our way and the mean girl inside our heads that tells us we can't do it. So that's a perfect segue because one of the things you speak about, which I think is actually really interesting, is if there is a scenario in which money is playing an unhealthy role in your life, can you speak a little bit about how sort of your relationships around you as it relates to money can affect your view on this? Totally. I think that we all have financial traumas, whether we have recognized that or not. So the way we're brought up, whether our parents hoarded or clipped coupons or went on vacations or whatever, kind of gets seeped into our mindset about money. And so does our friend group, how our friends spend, if they hide stuff from their spouses, if they go shopping, if they you know get into a bunch of debt and also macroeconomic factors like you know living through the dot com bubble or living through a pandemic or the housing crash uh and then you know all of that affects the way we view money and we think that that's the way it's supposed to be and the truth is nothing is the way it needs to be you get to decide just because it's been done a certain way doesn't mean it's the way it needs to be done and i think it's important for all of us to have that moment where we name our financial traumas, whatever they are, say hello, and then decide how you want your story to be written. It's like when I became a vegetarian, I was 11. Um, I asked myself, 
myself. Do I like meat? And my family ate meat growing up and we're Jewish. And so I was like, okay, do I like meat? Do I want to be Jewish? And the answer was no, I don't like meat. But the answer could have been yes. And I think it's that moment where you ask yourself, okay, I can do it the very same way, but is this right for me? We should all have that moment with finances. I totally agree. Let's talk about tracking your spending. People always say they don't have time to do that. They're too busy to do that. Like if everyone leaves here tonight, tomorrow morning they wake up. What are some steps people should take to track their spending? I mean, our time is our most valuable asset. And this is coming from a money lady. And if we look at how we spend our time researching boots for the fall or whatever, researching your next (laughs) vacation, researching your wedding, having a Pinterest board for your wedding, you know, whatever else you're doing online that cookies are following you around the internet, trying to lure you into retail therapy, just take that same amount of time and put it into getting your financial life together. You know, knowledge isn't power. I call BS on that. And I call BS on a lot of cliches. I'm very allergic to them. Um, It's action that's power. We have so much information. I mean, I have like a few Russian novels if you stack my books all together. I have a daily podcast. There's a thousand zillion articles on all this stuff. The information is all there. We're not lacking that. We're lacking action. And so I think you have to decide today is as good a day as any to start doing this. And the truth is you don't need a lot of money to start. You need the most time possible. And so compound interest, we've been socialized to that through credit cards and mortgages. That very same force can be used in our favor to make our money grow for us by actually doing nothing. I actually don't love doing a lot of work. I'm not sitting around like looking at stock charts and doing analysis all day long. I just come up with a plan. I set it and forget it. And literally my money is making money for me by me doing zero things. And so starting today, you're never as young as you are today. And so if you don't have a lot of money, cool, get the most time possible. Great advice which segues perfectly into this idea, which I love this idea. And I love this chapter title, put a price tag on your dreams, how to reverse engineer your goals. Talk to us about how you do that. So a lot of folks have said to me over the years, yeah, I know what I want. I want a million bucks. I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, What do you want to do with that million bucks? Maybe you need more than a million bucks. Maybe you need less than a million dollars. I have no idea. First, figure out the life you want and then realize that goals have price tags and then figure out how to get that money and not some arbitrary number that sounds good. It's first figuring out truly like answering for yourself. What is it that I want? And, you know, comparison is the thief of joy. So if you see on social media like this person, that person has a yacht or this or that or some production deal, you have to remind yourself, like, is this on my list? If not, then move along because I think oftentimes we constantly move the goalpost on ourselves. Like I called you before every book launch freaking the fuck out because I thought I wasn't going to be successful. The reason that I did that now in hindsight is because I didn't have 
metrics to measure my success to. If I didn't have metrics like X press interviews, X number of books, then I was never going to feel successful. Never, never, never. And in Becoming Superwoman, I talk about the idea that women can have it all, but only if we define what it all is and stick to it and stop moving the goalpost on ourselves. We can't do it all. And that's a whole other podcast, but we absolutely can have it all. And a lot of the things that we want aren't as expensive as you might imagine. Like I break down even what having a jet might cost or or renting or whatever, all the expensive things that you think are not within your reach. They are They're within your reach, but only if you define them and only if you grab for them. So I love this idea that you squash to death, which is, I think the first thing people say typically is like, oh, you want to save money? Like cut out the latte. And Nicole's like, that is some bullshit. Let's talk about why the small things don't matter as much as the big things that you're doing. It was one of the first things that got me really fired up when I was at CNBC and I left my job mid-contract and the whole thing because I was talking to old rich white dudes about money and I realized that's not the audience that needs me. They don't need me. I was commoditized. <laughs> Another you know, young woman could go in and talk to these dudes about what the Dow was doing. Um, I wanted to reach this audience, my former self, the girl who was smiling and nodding and not you know, joining basic money conversations because she was too scared and too intimidated. So listening to this financial advice from, you know, we know the the usual suspects and all financial experts have their own audience and it's awesome. It just wasn't the advice for me. I was so upset when I heard this advice of like, don't buy a latte, buy a house. That's going to give you financial freedom. And I'm like, what? The actual... No, you can buy a latte, maybe rent. That's okay. The financial gods are not going to come down and get you. In life, in relationships, it's the little things that matter. I took a class at Northwestern on Russian lit, and the most attended lecture at the entire university was what the meaning of life was from Anna Karenina. And I'll just give you the gist from the whole class and that lecture was that it's the little things that matter. In life, that's totally true. In finances, it's the big things that matter. Focus more on what your credit score is because that's going to affect how much you pay in interest rates. Focus more on what state you live in because maybe you don't pay state income tax or whatever. Or, you know, in Tony Robbins' book, he said when he left from California to Florida, he bought his mansion just in the money he saved in taxes. And so these are huge things that matter way more than all the lattes in all the land. And so I really, I really, really just loathe this advice that, you know, you should cut out the little things that give you the most joy and why we work so hard for it. No, instead of a mindset of deprivation, Change it to a place of aspiration where you're focusing on making more money so you can buy your latte and buy a whole fucking Starbucks if you want to. (laughs) Okay. This line in the book, I mean, everyone here is going to be like, "Mm, okay, this is true. Nicole says, if you can successfully track down your ex's new girlfriend on Instagram or get to the fourth page of an Amazon product review, then you can absolutely follow your money trail. Yes. Everyone here is right. guilty of charge. Guilty of charge. I mean, 100%. So let's talk about the three E's. 
Essentials, Extras, and Endgame. Yep. Where my marketing campaign for Rich Bitch was like budgeting sex, but so does being broke. And I had a bunch of billboards around it because it's true. Like it's not funsies. Like there's other stuff that I'd rather do. Uh, Money doesn't need to be exciting. You want excitement? Listen to Elisa's podcast. Uh, (laughs) Pick up a weekly magazine. Go to a club. Money is not super exciting, but making money is amazing. And so with the three E's, I love alliteration. And now you know the origin story of of why. And sneak attack, there are some literary things in my books that only make me happy. And that's essentials and game and extras where 70% of your overall spending plan goes to the essentials. So your food, your housing, your transportation, all that good stuff. Uh, 15% goes to the end game. So your future self, your savings, your investments, your retirement, and then 15% to the extra. So the latte, the mani-pedi, whatever does it for you. And allow yourself to have those small indulgences because just like a regular diet, you'll end up binging later on if you don't. This is why Elisa loves WW, the company formerly known as Weight Watchers, because of this points system that allows you to have, right? a little piece of chocolate. So you don't end up binging on a big old hunk of chocolate cake in the middle of the night because you're so hungry and so deprived. I've been there. And the same thing happens with money. When people say to me in the beginning of the year, oh my God, Nicole, you'd be so proud of me. I cut out the morning latte. Come April, they're like, I bought a Gucci purse because I was so good. And I didn't buy the latte. I'm like, girl, you could buy a latte every day. Then you wouldn't need to feel like you're deprived and need this Gucci purse. Anyway, for Miss Independent, I really double click on the end game part of this and what to do with that 15% or whatever it is you decide your percentages to go into your Miss Independent fund, which is ultimately few money that allows you to have your own back, that allows you to leave a crappy job or a toxic job or a toxic relationship. Aliza, too many women I've spoken to are in abusive relationships because they're too scared of leaving because of finances. They're afraid they can't support themselves or figure any of this stuff out. It's so real. Yeah. This chart, you guys, I can't wait for you to get this book. Marie Kondo, you're spending. So Nicole has this chart and the chart has like all the things you spend on. And then that level of joy from one to five that it gives you to do such a thing. So Manny Petty, spin class, whatever it is, how much it costs, how many times per month you need to do such a thing. And then what's the monthly cost, the yearly cost. And then the rating system obviously kind of helps you prioritize. So smart. You're so smart. Thanks. Because I it's, that. I mean, yes, sure. Can you trim some stuff here or there? But once you get intentional about it, you can have anything. You just don't have to have everything. And getting to that place of empowerment is really important where you think like, you know what, this doesn't bring me the same joy as it used to. And, you know, your life and your priorities change and that's okay. Figure out whatever does it for you and put it in the budget, just like any company would, right? Elisa, you run P&Ls and you have in the budget staplers or whatever it is for the office. Like you're not sneaking and buying staplers. It's on the budget. It's above board. So you don't need to sneak around yourself. You don't need to like, oh, I'm going to sneak and get the mani patty or whatever. Put it in the budget and account for it. Yeah. And that's totally. how you plan for it. Totally. Let's talk about net worth because I do think people think like, okay, only millionaires have net worth, Right. So you're saying everyone has net worth. And if your net worth is like zero or negative, that's still your net worth and the place that you start off. Speak to that. 
So your net worth is assets minus liabilities. That's it. And so it's figuring out all the stuff you have minus all the stuff you owe. And that is your net worth. And the reason it's important to know what that is, and even if that is zero, or in some cases, if you're in debt, could be negative, is that you ultimately want to have more assets than liabilities. That's it. That's all these finance books will tell you. To create and pay yourself first, to buy more assets, because we're in this wrong cycle of spending more on liabilities and debt and things like that before we're actually accumulating wealth. And so I think that's the mindset that we should flip. Pay yourself first. This is actually a really good section, so I'm going to move right over to it. I think even when I read this, I was like, wait, what does she mean pay myself first? I'm not working for myself. I work for a company. So explain what you mean when you say pay yourself first. Yeah. I mean, you pay taxes, right? Like Uncle Sam tries to get demanded to be paid first. This is a whole other podcast, but try not to get a refund because otherwise you're just letting them play with your money instead of you using it to work for you. You're kind of messing up some of the deductions, if that's the case, like people get really excited when refunds come around because they think it's, you know, free money. It's not, it's your money just coming back to you. And so <laughs> paying yourself first is the concept of putting yourself before anything else. And this is doubly important when you do have your own business. I think far too many entrepreneurs don't pay themselves at all or don't pay themselves. And that just, you know, is not sustainable. Like we've talked about other financial practices that aren't sustainable mm -hmm. for the long run. And so this is where you prioritize putting money into your misindependent fund that will ultimately grow and work for you through different vehicles than just your checking account. I mean, we don't need to answer now, but how many of us have some savings in our checking account only? Or if there is a brokerage account, I would love to hear more about that. But too many women have all of their money in a regular bank account. And that is getting you no money over time. In fact, you're losing money by putting money in a bank account. So inflation, we've heard a lot of headlines about recently that it's bananas at you know seven-ish percent. Typically it's 3%. If you put your money in a bank account, you're getting less than 1%. And so it's easy math, right? 3% minus 1%, you're negative 2% on your purchasing power just by leaving your money in a regular bank account. And so ideally, you need to make more than inflation just to keep pace with your dollars today, buying you the same stuff as they will tomorrow. Inflation is just you know why movie tickets were $5 when we were growing up, or I don't know how old everybody is, but when I was growing up um, at Elisa, they were $5 or so. And now they're 15 or more, and that's not including the popcorn. So that's what inflation is. You want to protect yourself at least against that. And then, you know, stock market returns over time are about 10%, <laughs> inflation adjusted about 7%. So I think that it's really important to pay yourself first so that your money has the most possible time and momentum to grow for you. Yes. And to add to that, Nicole recommends that you speak to your company about having a direct deposit into your misindependent fund so that it like you literally does not stop, does not pass go, do not collect $200, just like let it just go straight into that fund so you do not touch it. Yeah. So it's totally, you're not tempted to use it. 
we know the idea of direct payments for bills. The same thing is paying yourself first and setting up this system, which you can just do once, twice a year if you're you know, feeling ambitious. And again, set it and forget it. It's not like you need to do this all day, every day. I certainly don't. I don't look at any of my accounts and things like that. I set up a dollar cost averaging. We can talk about that if you want. System and that's it. And I put my blinders on and I try not to, for my personal investments, I try not to listen to group think or what's going on, you know, in the news and all the hysteria. Typically, you should do the opposite of what the hysteria is. And so, you know, look, buy low, sell high is one of the two truisms, I believe, on Wall Street. The other is it's better to be low expectations, which is also truism in life. But again, a whole other discussion. And so when you're buying low, you want to buy stuff when it's on sale. And that's when everybody's selling. So when people are like slipping into my DMs, these are the fun, sexy DMs I get. Should I sell my stocks while, you know, the pandemic is starting? No, no, you're on a roller coaster. Like you don't get off in the middle of a roller coaster. That's not how roller coasters work. You know, the stock market is going to go up and it's going to go down. But in the history of the world, Eliza, we have never not recovered from a single recession, dip, depression, anything. And so, yes, it's going to go down. That's what's going to happen. But, you know, this is for the long run. I like to put my blinders on and, you know, really stick to index funds and chill, which is, you know, my new mantra around investments. I feel like that's a t-shirt. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> index funds and chill, because especially if you're just starting off in the market, you don't want to be stock picking and trying to find the next big thing. Honestly, the, the old adage, or dad joke or mom joke or whatever is the fastest, easiest way to double your money is to fold it in half. There's no easy <laughs> way to make money. It's not fun and sexy. Like all of these things that you see on the side of Facebook or whatever for like Forex and crypto and whatever, and like get rich quick stuff. If it sounds too good to be true, it usually is. But Warren Buffett, one of the greatest investors of our time, wrote literally in his will, which I put in the book, to his wife when he dies to put a majority of their money in low-cost S&P 500 index funds. That's it. Like, nothing else fancy. And that's basically tracking the market. It's super, super, super hard to beat the market. Aliza, a lot of Morningstar or whatever reviews have great publicists because they want the star ratings or they want to make people believe that they have some magic sauce and they, they're going to beat what the S&P 500 does. So when you hear on the news, by the way, just to rewind what an index fund even is, I should probably tell you what an index is. And it's all good if you don't know that. If you do, awesome. You know, those are indexes. So the Dow, the S&P 500, the NASDAQ, those are all indices, indexes, whatever. And so when you buy an index fund, you're basically buying a little piece of all of those companies. So for the S&P 500, the biggest 500, actually 505, that drives me crazy, but it's 505, fun fact. In the S&P 500, so if something goes down, something else is going to be propping it up. And that's what the market does over time. And that's where I said, you know, it's typically 10% before inflation is what the market is doing. So that's really what we're looking at as benchmark. Oh my God. Such a wealth of information. I know. Okay. I just want to, I want to tell you everything. Well, I know, <laughs> but you put everything in this book. So it's great. But I think, okay, two things that I want to talk about. One is this idea 
that there's no way to save when you make, you know, a small paycheck and you're living paycheck to paycheck and you have to pay rent. So, you know, especially for younger people, what is the sort of intro to saving in that sense when you feel like there isn't extra? It doesn't need to be a lot. And this is a great point for young people. So if you put a hundred bucks a month in an index fund, starting when you're 25, if you take that out when you're 65, you have a million dollars. No, you... really? Yeah, girl, that's how the interest works. If you instead put a hundred bucks a month in the market at 35 instead of 25, you would have 300 grand by the time you're 65. So wow. that's $700,000 less just by putting a hundred bucks a month. Now, and that's $12,000, right? So a hundred times 12 times 10, that's it. It's just $12,000. Like in the scheme of things, that's what's going to help you grow your money into a fortune for yourself to have. And so that's this amazing power of compound interest that Einstein calls the eighth wonder of the world. And yeah, I don't know why we don't learn this in school. It drives me crazy. I created these online courses because I was so tired of saying this, like we should learn this in school. I was like, I'll just fucking create a school. Let's talk about your school because it is a travesty that we're not taught this. I mean, think about the shit we're taught. Literally, we don't use any of it. Very few things make me as upset. Yeah. What do your kids learn right now? And what do you think they're going to use? Like the train going to the station and calculating the whatever, like look on Google Maps or what? I mean, it's a joke. It's an absolute joke. And when I'm finished birthing all these books, this is my mission to make financial literacy taught in school. Even business schools that I'd go and speak at, I thought I'd be escorted out of the buildings, by the way. I'd go to like Harvard and Georgetown. I'm like, wait a minute, guys, hold on. You guys are spending $100,000 for your brain a year and you want me to teach you stuff? Like, <laughs> there's something wrong with the system. And they're asking me the basic question, you know, that we're in rich bitch at the time. And I'm like, hold on, you guys aren't taught how to do a budget or like your taxes or how to make a business plan and you're in business school. Like, what are you learning? And it's all this like economic theory and bullshit, bullshit, bullshit that you're like never going to need. Oh my God. So look, people ask me all the time, you know, what investment app or whatever, Charles Schwab, E-Trade, Fidelity, Vanguard, they're all the same. They all do the same things. The one I prefer for you is the one you're going to stick to. And for whatever reason that is, because you like the colors, because you like the UX, UI, I don't care. They all do the exact same thing. So just pick your poison, stick to it. You know, I have Schwab. It doesn't matter. They're, again, all the same. And just put money and buy index funds. And that's it. But there is a warning in here that I will share that Nicole shares um, about brokers. Mm. And broker by any other name. So I think this is really important if you just want to speak to that for a sec. Yeah, this was one of the sections that I had a little heat. I am a rabble wrestler and a troublemaker. And so some of the folks on my team were like, I don't know if you should say this. You're going to, you know, really potentially deter brand deals in the future from banks. Like you're really going in hard on them. And I said, Okay, at this point, I don't care because this is so important to know that 
I'm just not going to like spew more of the financial systems bullshit because they create a lot of complicated terms and then they charge you money to then run them when they're all simple to start. So a broker by any other name is a broker, like a vice president of blah, blah at Morgan Stanley or, you know, some other kind of stockbroker or whatever financial person you get their card. They're not your friend. They're not. They're selling their own stuff. It's like, Aliza, the difference between a stylist and a person at Saks. The person at Saks is going to get commission off whatever they sell you. The stylist is getting a flat fee. So you want a fiduciary who is only working for you. And instead of calling one of these brokerages, they're going to sell you their own books because that's how they make money. And so I you know, didn't want to pants them, but I kind of had to because this is really important information. So if you want a financial advisor, a fiduciary, you have to ask. And I put a script in the book because you know, a lot of these conversations are challenging. We we know in theory we should negotiate, but like, what do we say? We have brain farts, all the things. And so I put in the script of the things that you should ask and make sure that you are dealing with a fiduciary first and foremost, because that's somebody that's working ultimately for you. It's like a dietitian versus a butcher, right? A butcher is going to want to sell you meat. The dietitian is going to look at your own personal thing. So that's my little knock on brokers. Independent Registered Investment Advisor, or RIA. Yeah. Okay. We covered a lot of different things tonight, but the book has like 100 million more things that get so into detail that, I mean, we'd have to talk for 75 hours. So Nicole, you're brilliant. And honestly, at this point, I mean, you've got like 50 MBAs and I don't even know what else (laughs) because... And you make it so not intimidating. Thank you so much for your time. Also, I just want to say huge congratulations. This book is number two on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. So, I mean, huge, huge, huge congrats. And I adore you. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up a copy of my bestselling book, Leave Your Mark. If you're on Instagram, make sure to follow at Leave Your Mark Podcast to stay up with the latest episodes. And of course, say hi to me at Aliza Lick Dexo. If you're on Twitter, definitely reach out at Aliza Licht. I would love to hear from you. If you want to subscribe to my newsletter or attend a future virtual mentoring event, go to alizalick.com for more information. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.